Welcome. This is Mad Hat Economics, recording from the heart of Cornell University, Ithaca. My name is Yu Dong, and we're a student majoring in applied economics. Today on our show, we invited our old friend, Professor David Just. Hello. And our, <laughs> and our new guest star, Dr. Michael Smith. Oh, thank you. I, I think that's the first time I've ever been introduced as Dr. Michael Smith. That's, well, yes, congratulations, oh. by the way. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, technically, you have to turn it in, so we'll oh, see what Okay, happens. so it's yeah. not quite Dr. I mean, you know, close enough, I think. Yeah. I mean... They, you, typically, we after the, the defense, we congratulate people and call them doctor. So. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. He is the winner of Ig Nobel Prize in 2015 for his publication Studying the Pain of Beast Things. And he's also a recent PhD graduate from Cornell's Department of Neurobiology and Behavior. And he's moving on to a postdoc at the University of Constance in the Department for Collective Behavior. So today we will talk about honeybees choice. So, um, Michael, could you tell us some your personal story about how you develop your passion for honeybee and oh. how you develop <laughs> that into your career? Yeah, no, that, that I certainly can do that. Uh, I uh, Even as a kid, I was really interested in, in honeybees and social insects, yeah. uh, but I grew up in Panama and I couldn't keep bees because uh, the bees are, are, are very defensive, yeah. so-called Africanized bees. Oh, yeah. And so I couldn't really do that, but then when I was... Um, I was in boarding school in Wales for, for a, a, a bit of time, and I met a Welsh beekeeper, and he pretty much was like, hey, you know, I'm a beekeeper, and I was like, well, I would love to, you know, hang out with your bees. Uh, and from there, pretty much, I was, I was pretty much hooked. Uh, and that, that, you know, went through college, and it meant summers working at Wellesley College. Uh, wow. And, and yeah, pretty much turned into, a, you know, pretty much, pretty much completely engulfed. It was a very uh, fortuitous interaction that kind of snowballed into pretty much everything I do. But uh, the interest was always there. It just uh, it was a bit of a tricky spot. Uh, but but yeah, I, I love working with bees, and I'm probably gonna keep doing that for as, as long as I go. Yeah, <laughs> for a long time work. Yeah. You know, beekeepers tend to live longer, so you know I feel like you know we're we've got a I got a good chance to, to really keep keep going until I kick the bucket. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How, how much work is uh, is involved in being a beekeeper? Uh, you know, a surprising amount for someone who's you know who does work in the sciences and biology. I think everyone is used to if you work with an organism to doing some amount of work with it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, like okay, you're, you you work with like fruit flies. You know, you're gonna have to take care of your fruit flies. We do a lot more work than you do with fruit flies. Huh. Uh, and you know, the other thing is, at least in the lab I'm I'm in right now, we don't have like a, a lab manager person who takes care of the bees for you. So I know that some people have that luxury. Uh, but for me. One, I, I do all that work myself, which is, is you know, it can be considerable. But two, it's such a nice time to interact with your study organism and, you know, kind of, it's, you know, some physical work, you kind of, you know, it's like you're relaxing in a way. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great time to come up with questions because, you know, you're seeing something, you're like, oh, that's kind of funny, or I hadn't really yeah. noticed that before. And it's those kinds of things that then end up being your next project or your next, uh, you know, the next thing you're going to do. Uh, so it's not it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It keeps you fit too. I mean, if you can't if you can't lift an eighty pound box, you can't you can't do beekeeping. Okay. Uh, so so you, got, you got your weight training just sort of built in. Actually, it's mostly <laughs> just just abs. Nothing else but abs. <laughs> Only abs. Yeah, okay. We know that your research is focused on how honeybees switch from investing survival to reproduction. So could you tell us more about your research? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so I think the the kind of like the 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 basic question behind what I do uh, is understanding how organisms 
change the way they invest their resources. So if you think of, of you know, you are, you're a person or you're an apple tree or you're a yeast cell or whatever you are, uh, you have resources that are coming in and then you have to invest those resources in survival and growth and reproduction. And this is kind of something that we're actually quite familiar with. So if you have like a, you know, you have a kid, they're investing their resources in just survival and growth. Yeah. And then as they grow, eventually they're going to start investing also in reproduction, and that's when they're going through puberty. They're not reproducing yet, but they're investing some of their resources into reproduction. So that's a, a switch. It's a developmental switch for that organism in the case of this, you know, it's like a, a kid going through puberty. At the colony level, so a colony of honeybees is multiple thousands of individuals, that colony also has similar cycles of growth and reproduction, and at some point they also make that switch to start investing in reproduction. And so that's really the, the developmental switch that I was interested in. But, but they do it as a group. They're not doing it as an individual. Yeah, so it's not like it's not like one individual just wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm, you know, it's time, like, you know, today's the day. <laughs> uh, it's and, and yeah, and so part of that part of that actually, uh, I guess I should probably mention, you know, what what actually that transition is, because it is something that is a collective uh, uh, transition, and that is their comb building. Uh, so they build a special type of honeycomb for reproduction. This is early reproduction. Uh, honeybees also swarm, so where they split in two, but that's a later stage of reproduction. This is the very the, the first type of reproduction that they do. Hmm. So all the hexagons that you've seen, you know, honeybee hexagons, they actually build two types of hexagons. They build some that are about 5.5 millimeters from wall to wall, so that's for rearing workers, and then they build a larger one that's for rearing drones, and the drones are the reproductive males, uh, and they're basically, you know, they call them basically like sperm rockets, because a colony rears drones and they mate with queens from other colonies. So it's, it's, it's a reproductive unit, huh. but they need to rear them because they're these larger drones. They need to rear them in larger size cells. So if we think of puberty as like the kid that's, that's investing in reproduction but isn't reproducing yet, it's the same thing as a honeybee colony that's building this specialized comb. They're not rearing the drones yet. They don't have fully functional reproductives yet, but they are building uh, infrastructure that's, that's earmarked for reproduction down the line. The shortest way I say it is honeybee puberty. <laughs> yeah. So how can those honeybees measure they, whether they should develop a colony, another colony? And is there some economic concepts in there? Yeah, so, so that's, I mean, that was pretty much that was the first question that I had. So uh, the idea is like, you know, how do you know that you have enough resources, that you've amassed enough resources, or that you're like doing well enough that you can start to kind of divert to, to reproduction? And, and it depends, you know, different organisms do things differently. But at some point, you have to know that, you know, okay, we have enough of this, we can switch. So that was, uh, we knew that larger colonies built drone comb uh, sooner, and they built more of it. <laughs> so, you know, we knew that larger, but larger colonies and small colonies are different in every single way. They're, they've got more workers, they've got more comb, they've got more brood, so young bees in the comb, they've got yeah. more honey stores. So the very first question was, you know, what, what resource is it that they're actually monitoring to let them know that, hey, you know, we've reached a point where we can afford, like, kind of, quote-unquote, afford to invest in reproduction. And that result was, was pretty, pretty straightforward, and it was worker number. So the colony has to have enough individuals for them to actually start investing in this reproductive comb. So they reach this, well, some, some sort of number of workers, and they just start. Yeah. And, and the cool thing about this, this switch is that it's... Uh, so these bees, they're, they're building comb, uh, and it's not that one individual's secreting all the wax that she can just build that whole cell all by herself. It's actually lots of individuals that have to come together to build that cell. So uh, like you said, like, is it just one individual that's like, you know, today's the day, let's time to reproduce. Yeah. It's actually, 
a lot of individuals have to be like, okay, you know, we've, we've, we've actually reached that stage. You know, as an aside, you know, as a biologist, you always want to have something that's very, really easily distinguishable. And it's so nice to pick up a piece <laughs> of comb and say, that's worker comb and that's drum comb. And I know because they look very different. Uh, yeah. The things that are very, very, you know, oh, well, is this, is it that, those, those are trickier. So if, if they need to have a certain number of workers in order to start switching over to this, this new type of honeycomb, how, how do they know? How do they know when to start? Yeah, that's that's a big question. Do they, they have like a, you know, a beehive auditor who goes? <laughs> yeah, you, you you know you would it would it, man it would make my life easy if there were one bee that was like literally the you know like the kind of one going across. Okay, we got Susan, we got Nancy, we got <laughs> Susan number two. Uh, I, I mentioned all female names because all the workers in the colony are female. Uh-huh. Uh, so it is it's so that that's why. I'm not, I'm not rejecting Bob and Joe for any reason. It's just because it's, it's, it's all ladies. So at least in these systems of like you know, collective intelligence and these systems with lots of individuals, usually don't think of there being like some kind of central controller. Uh, you know, even though there is a queen in the colony, she's not a queen in like the royal monarchy kind of like telling everyone what to do sense. <laughs> so like the, the analogy I used often, or at least one, you know, so I basically I had this fight. It's like, okay, we know that they're behaving, they're building different types of comb if they're in a small colony or a large colony. So how do you how do you know that the colony you're in is a large colony? And so you know, in in the most professional way possible, uh, you know, I think I think of my own experience. And okay, you know, you know, you're at a bar, you're at you know a friend's house, you're at a dinner party, whatever. How do you sense the size of the group you're in? Okay, you know, you look around and you count people. Okay, that's that's one way to tell colony size. But bees don't they can't do that inside their their hive because it's dark. Uh, you know, maybe it has to do with like how loud it is. Uh, maybe it has to do with how many times you're bumping into other individuals. Maybe it has to do with, you know, how hard it is to get a drink at the bar or get food at the at the dinner party. There's lots of different ways that we sense colony size. Yeah. Uh, and actually maybe, maybe inappropriately for my, for some of my teaching sections, I would actually have students put paper bags on their heads <laughs> and then they'd have to, they'd have to like kind of sense the size of the group. So I'd be like, okay, some of the students, you know, everyone's going to put the bag on their head and then some of you are going to be in the group and then you have to kind of estimate. And they would kind of just move around and mill around and, you know, hopefully not hit each other too hard. But people are actually pretty good, you know, with bags on your head, you're actually pretty good at sensing how many other people are, uh, are in your group. But in the more professional way, what this meant was, was doing two things. It meant doing a manipulative experiment where I could actually manipulate potential cues of colony size. So basically kind of try to trick the bees into yeah. seeing or thinking they're in a larger colony. And then also an observational study, which is very straightforward in, in that you just say, okay, this is a small colony, this is a large colony. They're exactly the same in every single way, except that one of them has twice as many bees. For an individual's experience, what changes? So what's a reliable cue? So you pretty much, you know, you kind of take, it's like the spaghetti method. You throw everything against the wall and anything that sticks is then something that you would want to actually experimentally manipulate. Yeah. So for example, you could say, okay, is temperature a good cue of colony size? So the first thing you'd want to do is you'd say, okay, this is a small colony, this is a large colony. We'll measure the temperature in both. Is there, you know, is there a reliable difference between the two? If the answer to that is yes, then you can go back and you can actually do a manipulative experiment where you actually take a small colony, you heat them up, and then you say, okay, did you girls build reproductive comb at a, at a smaller colony size? Yes or no? The answer to that is no, they don't. <laughs> uh, but okay. but, what, but what, what was a yes 
was that uh, things like contact rate change, things like density change in different parts of the nest, they change. And these are things that, that you know, you would, you know, okay, you put twice as many bees in a colony, of course, contact rate, and of course, density change. Uh, but then when you actually manipulate a colony, you basically squeeze them into a smaller space, they do actually start building drone comb in a smaller colony size. Uh, so there is a sense that the density, you know, the squeezing them into a smaller space does actually kind of uh, trick them into thinking they're in a larger colony than they are. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. If you can't see, you know, running into people and and just being uh, being that close to everybody else tells you, yeah, this is this is this is you know, this is getting to be too large of a colony. We need to start thinking about reproducing or, or splitting off, whatever. Yeah. And actually, I mean, and can I can I kind of flip this? To, I mean, to ask you guys a question. So, in the world of you know managing people and and having committees and having like, okay, well, we need a new, you know, I mean, everyone kind of rolls their eyes with like, oh God, another committee. We don't really need another <laughs> committee. But you know, at what point at what point does a department say, you know what, like we need we need to have a specialized person to deal with media relations. We need a specialized person to deal with. You know, we, we need an administrative assistant. We need a financial person. We need someone to help with grants. You know, at what point does a department get big enough that they're like, oh, we need these things? And the inverse. At what point does a department get so small that, you know, like kind of looks around and says, you know, it's, it's kind of time to cut some, cut some people. It's interesting. So there are a whole bunch of different things that can go into such a, a decision. People who study these things, have, you know, they, they try and figure out how to anticipate these sorts of problems, these sorts of issues. But my experience is, is really... We end up not doing that until it's way too late, right? Ah. We end up getting to a point where it is very clear that we're all suffering, um, you know, productivity loss for not having that central organization over this, this, you know, subgroup or whatever it might be. And oftentimes it, it's an idea that will come from the outside as somebody is hired into the group. Yeah. Or, or somebody, you know, has been visiting somewhere else and they realize here's a resource we could use. Yeah. Right. So the, I mean, and the bees don't have that luxury. No, uh, you, know, they don't, you, you know, can't like go on sabbatic to another hive. Yeah, you can't be like, well, you know, I went to neighboring, you know, Samantha's hive is actually quite well organized. Uh, but you know, but what they have going for them that we don't is is millions of years of evolution. Uh, and, you know, they they've had to make these, uh, they've had to tweak things to to do it right. Uh, and they have a they have a much uh, higher penalty for not doing it right because you know you get the axe. Uh, and, and that is that is not very forgiving. I, I do wonder though, you know, in, in groups, you know, it's it's one thing to like have to hire someone, but you know, imagine you've got your group, and you know, does someone almost take the role inadvertently, or kind of like, like you know, oh yeah, Joe, you know, Joe's actually pretty good at taxes, so he kind of ended up doing five, six, seven people's taxes, and then eventually Joe was like, look, guys, you know, this has to be a separate role. You know, there are those transitions yeah. that maybe are a little more gradual than after hiring someone. Well, there's certainly a lot that is gradual, and I, and I, I guess. The gradual changes are probably most of them, and they happen exactly the way you say, or, or somebody, you know, just sort of their comparative advantage sort of leads them to take on this role over a long period of time. Then you end up with issues of succession planning, but that's another, yeah. another talk, right? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, and so, I mean, while we're, while we're on this, I work with social insects. It's thousands of individuals interacting. We, we term it a superorganism because it's at the next level of biological organization. Uh, but in a lot of ways, it's similar to a, a human society. Uh, and I often think about, you know, okay, you, you've got a society, you've got, you know, the town of Ithaca, the city of New York, you know, all these different places. Uh, you could think of towns and societies as making investments in things yeah. that are, you know, okay, it's not reproduction from, you know, the town's perspective, but it's things like, okay, at what point is it worth it to have an art museum? 
Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, you can almost think about that as reproduction. It's growth. It's uh, it's you know how do we how do we attract more people and more uh, you know more business so people stay here longer. Yeah. Right. And and that's that's actually a really good question. I mean, you get you get a town like like Ithaca that really does value the idea of staying small and not not necessarily small in numbers, but small in feel. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, there's been opposition forever to having things like an interstate go through here. But think of all the commerce that that would bring. Think of think of all the people that could be benefited by having a, an interstate run yeah. through Ithaca, right? Yeah, actually, I mean, this is definitely an aside. But when I so when I first started as a grad student, I I drove here. My sister had some stuff in Boston. I was driving from Boston to here. And I got off the interstate, and I was used to most places being pretty close to an interstate. Yeah. And after about 20, 30 minutes of driving, I actually stopped the car, and I actually knocked on someone's door. I was like, have I gone horribly wrong? Like, <laughs> I feel like Ithaca, it's like a place that I know. I, you know it's an, like, have I done something wrong here? And they're like, no, no, it's just you just have to keep going. It's, it's Yeah, it's very, very isolated, but it, it's... I don't think that's going to change anytime soon yeah. just for the fact that people sort of want to keep it that way. So, and so, so when you're thinking of like the small town feel, and I, I know we're like, we're going way in the left field now, but yeah. uh, the, the idea of a small town feel. So a lot of the work that I did showed, you know, the contact rate and density, and these are important things to yeah. sense colony size. And the kind of the same thing goes to like feeling like you're part of a community and feeling like, you are know, like, Oh yeah, Ithaca's got that small town feel. And it's things like, okay, if I run into someone, if I if I meet someone somewhere, yeah. how likely is it that I'm going to run into them again? If I'm in New York City, the chances are you know, nothing. You're not going to run into those people again. Yeah. But in Ithaca, you see them at Wegmans, you see them at the farmers market, you see them on the Commons, you see them at you know your friend's potluck. You you really you have these uh, repeated interactions, and that is probably a lot of what makes Ithaca seem like a cool, fun place to live because you have these repeated interactions and you have these, it's got that small town feel. You know, even though we might have the same population as a place that's much more spread out because we have these locations that are like kind of high density locations, that's it right. gives us that good sense of, and I hate to plug Wegmans. I mean, it's just because, you know, I, yeah. yeah, but you go to, you know, I can't go to Wegmans without running into somebody I know. I also can't go to the airport without running into somebody I know. I, I grew up around uh, Washington, D.C. I sp- spent 11 years there, I will never run into anybody I know at the airports in D.C. Yeah. It's, it's never happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and some people like that and some people don't. Uh, but but it, I think it does go to show that, like, that, you know, your interaction rates and your contact rates are, are ways to get a sense and a feel for, for the size of the town you're in. And that's why, you know, Ithaca feels like a small town and somewhere like Boston, New York City, Philly definitely feel like big places. Yeah. Uh, so for me, the question is, you know, shoot, are, are bees are bees using that to sense the size of their colony? And you know, I've done I've done a lot of experiments to manipulate a lot of different ways, <laughs> and I've got a lot of negative results. Huh. Uh, but you know, okay, so I've got. I mean, one of the one of the really nice positive results is that you know you squeeze them into a smaller space, they will build this reproductive comb. But you know, squeezing them into a smaller space does a lot of different things. So uh, you know, you could think of maybe it's vibrations in the comb that are changing. So you know, partnered up with an engineer, and we looked at comb vibrations. And huh. while the vibrations do change with colony size, it's not a large enough change uh, for the bees to actually use it as a cue of colony size. It has other interesting components too about how you know, how they communicate in the hive and other interesting bits. Huh. Uh, yeah. But it, you know, it's it's not a good cue of colony size. The other thing was I thought you know okay maybe it just maybe you just have to have some areas of high density. So this would be like the Ithaca Farmer's Market. A lot of people go there. A lot of people are there. It's a high density location. Maybe you just need a place with high density. 
So I did some experiments where I had colonies and they're all the same size. And uh, imagine like, so have you ever, have you ever seen a bee colony? Uh, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's like, yeah, okay. It's, it's, I brought one right here. Yeah. Uh, I did not bring one right here. Thank goodness. Yeah. It's November. They're not, yeah, they're not happy right now. Uh, but you know, it's like a box and it's got these, these frames that hang in place. And that's the thing that you see beekeepers lift up and look on both sides. And so each one of those is a frame and it's each like an independent unit within the box. And that box holds one single colony. So I was able to take these wooden piece, wooden boards and put them in between those frames. And then imagine, so imagine like the difference between a funnel and a colander. So a funnel, you, you pour some water in there and it all is siphoned into that area. So you have a high density area. Yeah. Uh, and then in a colander, you pour water through and it just kind of spreads out through all the holes. So those wooden boards, one of them had two large holes like a funnel. And what happens there is if a bee wants to go from one frame to the next, she has to actually kind of, she hits the board and then she has to kind of like go through the funnel area. So you have a high density area Yeah. versus if you make lots of little holes and you've actually removed the same area, but you have all these little holes, the bee can go through pretty much wherever she wants to. So that's more uniform density. Hmm. Uh, and then of course you have a control where you basically take all those boards and you put them all on one side so that, you know, they've reduced the area uh, of the nest, but they're, they're not kind of messing around with the bees. Yeah. Uh, but gosh, I mean, they didn't do, they didn't do a darn thing different. They, they gave me, <laughs> they gave me such a solid no. I was like, girls, like, thank you for this very impressive no. Uh, but gosh, I was really hoping for the cover of science here. Yeah. Uh, but, but I guess, you know, what that told me though, was that it's not just having some area of high density. Uh, it's not just having more uniform density. Uh, it kind of got me to the point where it's thinking, okay, maybe they're actually sensing their density over area, which of course is a calculation of colony size. So that this bee, you know, you'd say, okay, I'm a bee and I'm walking through my colony and like, ooh, this is pretty high density over here. So it's high density for, you know, 10 centimeters and then low density for 20 centimeters and then medium density for five centimeters. And then she could somehow calculate that, that overall based on these different densities I've experienced, that's my colony size. Uh, so, I mean, the, the take-home message there, for me at least, is, is gosh, the, the bees are smarter than I think they are. I'm kidding. I think they're pretty smart, but it's like, you know, they, they always give me cool surprises. And, and you know, it's sometimes you just got to do the experiment. So it's just a lot, uh, a lot more complicated than, uh, than maybe you thought on the surface. Oh, you know, that's, that, that's true for any question in biology. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you really want to get a solid answer in biology, ask a high schooler. I was I was so smart in high school. I I was very like I was way smarter than I am now. I, I'm just, I've gotten progressively dumber as I go. Very good. Haven't yeah. we all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you see some other similarities between honeybees' behavior and humans human beings' behaviors? Other similarities between human behavior and honeybee behavior. Uh, so I guess we somewhat covered that in the idea yeah. of like societies so kind of investing things in there. Kind of also the idea of like being in a in a, a supermarket and kind of sensing the size or feel of a, of a town or like a department needing to get bigger or smaller. I'm trying to think of of other human behavior. Could you tell us uh, what how, how can we learn from honeybees? Oh, what's the education? Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So how do we learn from honeybees? Uh, you know, so so some of this stuff it's 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 uh, so I'm a big proponent of like. Basic research is important because it's basic and it's, it's just, you're just interested in your, and you're curious about it. And that if you work at it enough and you eventually, you know, there will be cool applied things that come out of it. 
at this point, it's really hard to imagine, at least at face value, things that, that I can say like, okay, well, you know, once we know how they do this, we're definitely going to know how we should decide to, you know, split a department in half or merge departments or stuff like that. What I can say that's, that's interesting at the evolutionary level, and this is just, this is another basic biology thing, is that uh, honeybee colonies are special in that they're a superorganism. So imagine you have unicellular life like yeast, or you have multicellular like you know people, and then you have superorganisms which are basically lots of multicellular organisms. So when we think that you know these problems of investment, investing in survival, growth, and production, yeast has to do it, humans have to do it, superorganism societies have to do it, human societies have to do it. It's really interesting to see how the those cues of colony size change at different levels. And the reason I even say you know colony size is even there are there are bacteria that when they get at high density, they release light. Uh, mm. And so they are sensing the density of other bacterium in there. This is actually also how they induce like a mass response in, uh, in cholera. Uh, so that's work by Bonnie Bassler, Princeton. Uh, and it's chemical cues that they use, these small hormone-like molecules. Okay. And then, you know, you're a human and you're going through puberty. Again, there's hormones involved there, because peptides, leptins, fat reserves. You know, for example, if, if you if you don't feed a kid or if a kid is very, very malnourished, they don't go through puberty until much later. Again, hormones, chemical cues, chemical signals. At the social insect level, at, the, at least the honeybee work I've done, you've switched from chemical cues to physical cues. And to me, that's really interesting because it's like, okay, well, what, what is it that's different about these yeah. systems that, that aren't the same in, in you know, unicellular, multicellular things? I know that, you know, at least volatile chemicals, uh, so volatile, so as in like, you know, airborne chemicals are not uh, one of the cues of colony size because I basically pumped in additional additional scent from a larger colony and that, that didn't work. Uh, it could be contact chemistry, so there's still that. That's still something in open area research that I'm working on. You know, something with density and squeezing them in a small area, it, it seems like they've switched, switched from chemical cues to physical cues. And that's an important thing because, you know, we and our societies, you know, we're not releasing a pheromone of like, hey, it's time to, you know, it's time to invest in the arts. Uh, <laughs> but it, it might have to do with these kind of physical cues. It's interesting to kind of think about how our societies uh, communicating about the developmental state of the society and how can we kind of tap into that uh, to that information. So the thing that I always think about is the stock market. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know much about the stock market, but I do know <laughs> that it has a, a heck of a lot to do with how people are feeling about the economy and how people's consumer confidence and you know what they think is going to happen, what they you know perceive. Yeah. And people are often very wrong. But, you know, honeybee colonies, they've got evolution on their side. Uh, and, you know, we've only had modern finance for, I don't know, it depends <laughs> on who you ask, but certainly not on the same time scale. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways, I think, you know, by understanding more about how these groups are sensing the developmental state, we can actually understand other uh, ideas of developmental state and, in societies yeah. and humans and groups like that. I mean, th thinking specifically about investment, I mean, there, there is a... a common theme throughout the history that we can trace where people get excited when they start seeing prices and values rise in the stock market, also in, in anything, right? In, in land, in tulips, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> they start seeing the, the value rise, they get excited, they start investing, thinking they're going to get rich, and things always go back to normal. Yeah. They always go back to normal, right? Yeah. They always go back to normal. And so people end up over-investing and losing their shirt, in these things. So are you saying that my Beanie Baby collection from the 90s? <laughs> Apparently, yes. Is that not going to be worth much? Probably not. <sighs> that is a tough gig. Probably not. You can, So that sort of magical thinking sort of runs throughout. And, and so I, I guess uh, the, the lesson here is evolution is sort of 
gotten rid of magical thinking among honeybees in a way. I, I guess, yeah. You, I mean, in a way, yeah, potentially. I mean, it's you know, the people that don't get caught up in those kind of uh, those kind of runaway. I, I guess the difficulty in there is that, you know, at, at the level of like in a society, you know, some people got rich on on the on the Pokemon craze. Oh, on yeah. the yeah. you know, you name the craze, like some <laughs> people were real people winners. That's right. Uh, so in that way, those things are probably gonna continue because there are certain individuals that do benefit and there are other individuals that lose. And because those individuals are not, you know, they're not linked together. So, you know, if if the three of us are here, if you win, I lose and you break even, mm-hmm. it doesn't One matter. You you win and I lose and that that's all. And and it's the winner who gets publicized. Right? Yeah. And the loser is who cares. <laughs> but it's, but, but in, a, in a honeybee colony, you know, there really are the, the the difference with them is that you know, if one bee wins and one bee loses, uh, that's a that's a net null for the colony because it's actually at the colony level that they're being selected for. Yeah. So you know, you could think that you know, if you think of countries and, and kind of regions as being potentially like a superorganism, I mean, there are you know individual units, but if you think of that reproducing, so you think maybe like you know, if you, and this is okay. If there are any biologists, hardcore biologists, I'm sorry, because they might really be like, like, Michael's gone off the deep end. But, you know, if you think, you know, maybe like, is the British Empire kind of like, were they exporting Britain into all these different areas? Yeah. Uh, and in that way, you know, when, when the Queen says, you know, arms up, think of England, you know, that's, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, so societies that have uh, have learned the sort of right balance of, of investment and economic, I don't know, structure, if you will. They're going to survive much longer yeah. than and, and have much more influence generally than those that don't. Yeah. Right. So, I you know where we have this individual tendency towards overinvestment in these these you know these things that actually do end up being pretty destructive. Overall, the cities that learn the right sort of growth formula get bigger and and end up you know drawing in a lot more more people and a lot more economic activity than those who uh, decide not to. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you know, and infra- yeah, infra- investing in infrastructure is is one of those things where it's like you know, no one comes out and you know, no one comes out and says, you know what I really, you know, you know what I really want to do is repair the roads. That's what I'm really excited about. Yeah. Because you know, you don't get to put your name on it. Uh, <laughs> you put somebody else's name on it. Yeah. They, they should really. What they really should do is when they have a bridge or like a repair, like any kind of like roads, like you know, it's like okay, this is State Street. They should also be like, if you're the mayor that actually like repaves and improves that road. They should have like sub like subtext underneath it where each one of them gets to put their name on it as like uh yeah that's State Street you know from this mayor this mayor this mayor that you can have a whole line you know twenty thirty this, different people that have this is a very very good idea yeah. yeah. how would somebody use what you've done <laughs> yeah okay so you know so yeah that's uh, as a biologist that's like something you always think about it's also for that's me good like, to know I, well yeah I, okay, maybe not everyone thinks about it but I I call it like the like the Thanksgiving the Thanksgiving test. And that is, you know, you're with your family, you know, they're not all biologists. You tell them what you do. Like, does everyone kind of leave and be like, scratch and be like, oh, my God, he's wasting his life. Or like, no, they do that to economists, trust me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's lots, you know, okay, uh, art history major. Like, you know, everyone, I think everyone has that feeling of like, how do you tell people the, like the value of your work? I got into bees as a beekeeper before bee researcher. I was always interested in sciences, but I kind of, it took me a while to actually be able to do them together. But uh I really do like to do work that also applies to what beekeepers are seeing and doing, what's important to them. And one of the big topics is honeybee health right now. I mean, okay. you know, bees aren't doing very well. 
Well, that's uh, right. I've heard a lot about uh, yeah, cardiac collapse <laughs> disorder. Yeah. You know, all these. There's really there's a lot of health problems going on here, whether it's pesticides or landscape use or varroa mites or new viruses and all these things. But one of the things that I think my work kind of would fit into that area is that you know, we don't really have a lot of good ways to diagnose colony health. So you know you know we're here in this room, and if 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 you're feeling sick, you can be like, hey, I'm sick. Take me to the hospital. And you know the same thing if, if a cow has uh, has a, a messed up leg or something, we can say like, oh, look at that leg. You know there's something wrong there. We need to take this cow to the hospital. We don't really have a good way of doing that with honeybee colonies. Huh. Uh, and if we could somehow use the way they're sensing their own developmental state, we could potentially come up with better ways to say like, look, this colony hasn't reproduced or is reproduced too early or isn't reproducing in this special way that we think they should. It might be a good way to kind of uh, preemptively find out which colonies need help and how to help them. Uh, so that would be, you know, that's like that kind of like the, the five-year, 10-year plan. But, uh, but you know, knowing how they do it themselves, you got to know that before you can know how you can help them, you know, help them in whatever way you're going to do it. Uh, so that's, you know, maybe we'll see. It, it's, something, it's something I'm actively working on and I'd like to do more of. So, so one more question. What inspired your work that, uh, that led to the Ig Nobel Prize? <laughs> I, yeah, honestly, so, you know, the thing that, the thing that me that's always funny about it is uh, it, it, it got so much uh, attention and popularity, which I can, I can see why. But as a biologist, it has done way worse things, like things that are like way more work or way more arduous or way more, in some ways, actually even painful. I was like, wow, like, you know, like, like that got so much popularity. And then, you know, other stuff I do, you know, oh, man. All that uh, other stuff is wasted effort. Yeah, <laughs> not wasted effort. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is, is actually what probably drives most biologists. And that's just curiosity. Yeah. I was, I was, you know, just hanging out. I was actually chatting with my advisor and we were talking about, oh, it hurts here. I got stung here once and it hurt really bad. And this, you know, you're just kind of like trading like kind of war stories of, of honeybee stings. And we're in the car and I'm thinking like, wow, like, you know, I wonder if, you know, because he had been stung places that had hurt and I'd been stung places that hadn't hurt. And I was like, I wonder if those would be consistent. I wonder if you could replicate them. And I wonder if, you know, potentially if you, you know, induce the same amount of venom in every single place that maybe it would be the same pain everywhere. But the answer to that is no. But the answer that, you know, it was uh, repeatable, that, you know, some places were consistently more painful than others was actually a pretty, uh, pretty to me, you know, useful and interesting result. And uh, it definitely satiated my curiosity for that. Uh, and, you know, the other thing about it is that it fit, it fit three pieces of puzzle really nicely together. Yeah. We knew that there were places that bees were more likely to sting. We knew places that we are more vulnerable to stings. Like, you know, if you get stung in your mouth, you know, that's not so good for you. If you get stung in your eyes, you might go blind. We know that bees go for areas like your eyes, nose, mouth. But we didn't really have the third piece of the puzzle, and that was that being stung in those places is the best deterrent. So, you know, if you got a bee that stings you in the arm, that's no big deal. If she stings you in the nostril, it's a wallop. It really is. It and, really hurts. And for a colony, that means, you know, losing one versus losing how many more. So I've, I've only been stung twice. One was on the leg somewhere, and it, yeah, it didn't really hurt. I got stung there. Wait, so it's uh, just in right between, in your between thumb my and... thumb and my first finger, and it hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so are you sure it was a honeybee, though? It might have been a wasp. It might have been a wasp. It might, I tend to blame the wasps. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Must have been a wasp. So you're saying this this wouldn't have been too bad an area usually. You know, I mean, it's all relative. It really depends. It depends on the person. I mean, I'm not saying we should do a controlled test on you, but... <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tend not to, no comment, I think. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it depends on different species of honeybee. Yeah. But, but, you know, could do, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, there's different, you know, different insects are stinging in different places. Uh, yeah. 
So I think that just brings us to a nice ending point. Thanks, um, Dr. Smith, for sharing your uh, so fantastic stories with <laughs> honeybees today. And thank you, Dr. Just. Yeah, <laughs> Professor Just. Yeah. All right, folks, here comes to the end. We are so glad you're enjoying our podcast, Mad Hat Economics. You can always find more from our website, Twitter, or just simply email us madhateconom at gmail.com. We are looking forward to hearing from you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks so much. <laughs>